Well, hey, listen at your own discretion, and that's my disclaimer. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors, and welcome to Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBTQ+. I'm your host, CJ. A little over three months until my daughter and her boyfriend move in with me, and I couldn't be more excited to have the company. So their move at the end of May is going to be a great thing for all of us, I think, at least financially. And if it's not, you know I'll be bitching to you about it later. I'm saving up still to get to the True Crime and Paranormal Festival in Austin, Texas in August. I'd love to see you there. You can use promo code BEYOND for 15% off your ticket to the festival. I'll leave a link to the website in the show notes. And it looks like there'll be other dark cast shows there as well. Autumn from Autumn's Oddities, Mallory from A Hateful Homicide, which you probably haven't heard of yet, but it's a brilliant new show on Darkcast Network, and it's based on trans and gender non-conforming crimes, murders, thus a hateful homicide. Murder Murder News possibly could be there. Weird True Crime and Sinister Story Hour are planning on being there, and maybe even more shows. I'm super excited to see them, and my friend Jen from our True Crime podcast, Eric from True Consequences, and Courtney from A Nefarious Nightmare. You can find me on the socials as Rainbow Crime and Darkcast Network just about everywhere. Also, please consider joining my Patreon at the $5 unicorn level. You'll get no ads in the episode, and I know some of you really hate those ads, early release of those episodes, and one extra case at the end of every month that I've not shared here on the regular show. As we take our unicorns out for a ride and I tell you the story, I'll also name a unicorn in your honor, and I'll shoot you some stickers and some other fun things if I can get your mailing address. Well, I think that's it for the housekeeping. Now let's get down to business. The case I'm presenting to you today is one from 1990, Hollywood, California. It's actually been a cold case until very recently, the last year or two, when a group of citizen sleuths were able to solve it. This group includes an LAPD cold case detective, a filmmaker, a stay-at-home dad, and two podcast hosts and writers living in Los Angeles, who happen to be a couple of gay men. The podcast host names are Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Their podcast is The Dinner Party Show, and it's been touted as the Internet's first live comedy variety show. The host became a little obsessed with the victim and the whole crime that I'm going to tell you about and amazingly, they helped to solve the case. This story pulls no punches in the way of twists and turns either. William Arnold Newton was born July 29, 1965. He was a Leo, and he lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. But his mom, she bounced him all around Wisconsin until he ran away at the age of 16 to Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City was where his dad was in 1980. William went up to his dad's door and he knocked. His dad opened it and he said, 
You're no faggot son of mine, and he slammed the door closed in William's face. William, who went by Bill, had that cute, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, boy-next-door type look. He almost reminded me of a cross between a young Kevin Bacon and Kiefer Sutherland. After being dejected by his dad, Bill met a young man named Terry and started to live with him as opposed to going back to live with his mother again. But Bill grew restless easily. Bill decided to drop out of high school. He actually never attended high school in Oklahoma because there was no real adult in his life anymore to oversee that he went to school. Instead, Bill enrolled into cosmetology school and he earned his beautician's license. With his newfound license in hand, Bill then left Terry in Oklahoma City. He made up his mind to move to Southern California in 1984. He also got his GED through the Los Angeles School District, but that wasn't until 1989. Bill wasn't dumb by any means. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He just got bored quickly with mundane routine. Before completely settling down in the Los Angeles area in 1985, he traveled around the United States. This allowed him to explore for sure who he was. Oh, he knew he was gay, but he wasn't sure what his interests other than sexually were. He really just wanted to see what was out there in the world and explore possibilities. Bill was also very artistic. Poetry and drawing were his creative outlets. When Bill was back in Los Angeles, he worked as a makeup artist and a choreographer for a company that produced music videos. This had to be a pretty good gig, too. As I remember, videos and MTV were all the rage in the 80s. But as we know, living in a big city is expensive. In spite of having two jobs he loved, Bill knew he was going to need another job to help pay his living expenses. Bill took a job at the Hollywood Spa, which was a gay bathhouse. While working at the bathhouse, Bill met Mark Rabin. He was an adult film producer catering to gay erotic movies. The two started dating and eventually they became lovers. Bill would even star in some of Mark's films and he changed his name to Bill E. London. (laughs) No, I didn't choke on the word Billy. He used the letter E as his middle name, so it became Billy. Bill E. Billy. Billy London. And just Billy to most. They'd often use their own apartment to shoot the movies in, and then they'd redecorate after every movie wrapped. That way it didn't look like they were in the same place all the time. The two men would often party into the morning hours, getting amped up with meth on weekends and Billy liked to keep the roots of his hair dyed so people wouldn't assume he was blonde and dumb. You know, because of the dumb blonde stigma that floats around. He'd tell people he bleaches it to be blonde. I, by the way, take offense to the dumb blonde stigma. My daughter's blonde, and she's one smart cookie. Maybe not so much book smart as she is common sense and street smart, which I think in this world can be much more important. On the night of October 28, 1990, 25-year-old Billy was out on the town having a good time. He and Mark were in this on-again, off-again relationship, and at this point, the relationship was off-again. Billy was even planning on moving to Las Vegas for a while. 
he really needed a mental health break. So that night on October 28, 1990, Billy went to The Rage, which was a gay nightclub in West Hollywood. The Rage has since shut down due to landlord disputes and COVID in 2020. The last time Billy was seen alive was leaving The Rage alone, late the night of the 28th, or it could have even been the early hours of October 29th. But later the following day, which was the 29th, Billy's head and feet were recovered in a dumpster in Santa Monica, California. This is about 11 miles from West Hollywood. The rest of Billy's body has never surfaced. His murder becoming a cold case that's been dubbed the gay black Dahlia murder by media. As a side, Jeffrey Dahmer was caught in July of 1991. He was suspected for some time of being Billy's killer. But Dahmer admitted to all those he murdered, and he denied ever knowing Billy, let alone slaying him. Year after year, Billy's murder remained a mystery. Now we're going to flash forward a little bit to the year 2007, and we're going to go back to Oklahoma where Billy came from. In 2007, it had now been 17 years after Billy's murder. A 62-year-old gay man by the name of Stephen Domer was last seen alive near a car wash talking to two men. Stephen was sometimes known to pick up men and bring them back to his place for sex. A little over a week later, after Stephen was seen talking to those two men, his body was found dumped in a ravine in McLean County, Oklahoma. Ten days after that, a man known to be part of the United Aryan Brotherhood was found murdered. But CJ, what did Stephen and the white supremacist have in common? And what the hell did either have to do with Billy? I'll get back to the Billy part. But Stephen and the Aryan Brotherhood member were thought to be murdered by another Aryan skinhead, a 37-year-old man named Daryl Lynn Madden. Daryl had a shaved head and face tats. One of the tats was a teardrop coming from one eye, and the other appeared to be slashes where his eyebrows once were. Not only did he look the part of a criminal skinhead, he acted the part as well. Daryl was being looked at by the police detectives in Oklahoma for killing his fellow skinhead and they believe that both members of the Aryan Brotherhood killed Stephen as an initiation, which they did. Daryl said he was looking for an easy mark to roll for his buddy, and he decided what could be easier than a gay man. Daryl's trial for the murders of Stephen and the fellow skinhead were held the following year in 2008. He was found guilty after confessing, and he was given four life sentences although the death sentence was still being considered. Oklahoma didn't have any hate crime laws at the time, so that was off the table, although had there been any, Daryl's murder of Stephen would have definitely qualified for it. Over the years sitting in his prison cell, Daryl went through some life transformations. Oh, he still had his face tattoos, although he tried to turn them into something more beautiful. Beautiful? Well, that's a weird comment to say about a skinhead. Hear me out, warriors. The slashes of where his eyebrows were are full-on eyebrow tats now. The teardrops look more like it's supposed to be some type of beauty mark, or maybe it's even a heart. 
where the shaved head once was his trademark of being a skinhead, there is a mane of flowing, brownish, graying long hair, and Darrow went from being a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, a white supremacist group, to being a Jewish woman called Darylin Madden. Did you all see that one coming? Because I sure didn't. What a 180 Darylin did. From being someone that hates the LGBTQ and Jews to becoming part of both communities, it's downright flabbergasting. Almost as shocking as finding out Daryl was once a gay porn actor as well. Yes, this insight leads me to believe that Darylin had been struggling with inner demons for a very long time. But we should probably get back to our original story of Billy London and that of the citizen detectives who cracked the case. Although because you, my listeners, are so smart, you can probably see the path that these twists and turns are leading us on. Part of the citizen detectives, the stay-at-home dad named Clark Williams, he had been fascinated with the Billy London case for years. He had also heard of the case of Stephen Domer in Oklahoma, who was murdered by the two skinheads. So he started to look a little harder at them and their backgrounds. He was surprised to find Darylin and Billy led kind of parallel lives. Both had lived in Los Angeles in the 1980s and early 90s. Both were gay porn actors. Oh, by the way, Darylin's porn actor name was Billy Houston, which isn't far off from Billy London. Then Darylin went from acting in gay pornos to becoming a skinhead and killing a gay man in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, also where Billy London was living before moving to the Los Angeles area. All of this just seemed like way too many coincidences to Clark. So when Clark presented his findings to the Los Angeles cold case detective, the detective said, I've always considered myself a good and thorough investigator, but I would have never made this connection. Not long later, the filmmaker and the podcast host were also all looking into the case. After a good amount of ideas and information came through from all of the citizen detectives, the cold case detective flew to Oklahoma to interview Darylin. She right out admitted to killing Billy in Los Angeles in 1990. She said she approached Billy one night when she saw him leaving a gay club. She calmly told him she was going to rob him, kidnap him, and probably beat the shit out of him, but he'd be okay after, which we know turned into a huge lie. She said she'd then strangled him to death before dismembering his body. After that, she would say no more. It's speculated she thought if she did, she might be incriminating an accomplice. Even though Billy's murderer had confessed, the state of California decided not to take Darylin to trial for Billy's murder. They feel there just isn't enough evidence to prove it in spite of her confession. Plus, Darylin is already spending the rest of her life locked up. I have mixed feelings about all of this. On one hand, I feel Billy really isn't getting the unicorn justice he deserves. On the other hand, that's a lot of money in court fees and such that's being saved on someone who's already serving four life sentences for other killings. As for the other citizen detectives on the case, 
The filmmaker is named Rachel Mason, and she grew up in her parents' shop. That shop rented gay porn movies and sold LGBTQ books. Rachel was looking to make a film that had a real story to it, something that felt personal to her. She met up with a man who's a writer and activist to go through his collection of old Hollywood photos. Rachel picked up a book and a newspaper article about Billy London's murder fell out. She looked at his picture and he looked like so many of the young men that her parents had employed in their bookshop. She began to ask about the article and it intrigued her. Rachel went on to finish up another project she was working on, but she kept thinking about the Billy London case. She began her research and digging into the case. At about the same time, so did our two podcast hosts, Christopher and Eric. The two hosts put out a call of action on their podcast. They were asking for any tips or leads in the case of murdered Billy almost 30 years ago. That was back in 2020 they did this. One of the tips was of a witness who saw Billy at the rage, and also talking with someone he thought looked like Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, while that tip turned out to lead nowhere, the L.A. cold case detective who was now on the case started to learn of the other citizen detectives and reached out to him. The detective had six binders on Billy's case, and he cracked open each and every one of them and began to relook into the case, as well as the tips from the stay-at-home dad. What this citizen task force did was lead to Daryl Lynn Madden, or Daryl Lynn as we know her today. I really hate that Billy London and Stephen Domer had to die but I love the way these folks all came together to solve this case. Rest in power, Billy and Stephen. As for our true crime quickie, it's been a bloody month of February for our friends in the state of New York. In fact, in the short span of 15 hours, two people died and nine were wounded due to gun violence. For gay 19-year-old DeAndre Matthews, who went by Dre, he would become one of many victims slain this month in New York. Dre sounds like he was a wonderful young man with a bright future ahead of him. He didn't partake in drugs or illegal anything, really. He wasn't lost in street gangs. Dre worked two jobs and he went to junior college studying to become a social worker. He really wanted to help people. As far as his mom knew, Dre wasn't dating anyone. I'm not sure where he would have found the time with two jobs in school. He had a fantastic sense of humor, and when he did have some free time, he usually spent it with his family or at home playing video games. Dre also really loved to drive. He was a very kind young man. His family feels that his kindness might have been a contributing factor to his murder. Dre lived with his mom in Brooklyn, and she last saw Dre on February 6th. He was leaving home for one of his jobs. This was at the buggy car rentals. She texted with him later in the day, and she gave him permission to use her car, a Jeep Cherokee, that evening. When Dre got off of work, he went home, and he took his mom's car out around 5.45 p.m but he never returned home that night. That was not in Dre's character at all. 
His mom filed a missing persons report when she couldn't contact him that night. The following day on February 7th, his mother's car was found abandoned and burnt close to their home. This was only a few minutes away in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Dre's body was discovered a little further away, laying across some railroad tracks near Nostrand Avenue. The medical examiner said Dre had died from a gunshot wound to his head. He also had smoke inhalation to his lungs and a significant amount of burns all over his body. Dre's mom feels her son was murdered for being gay. She said it was an intentional act, most likely by someone who wasn't secure with their own sexuality. Did Dre possibly meet up with somebody on Grinder or another dating app? I don't know. There have been no arrests, no suspects named in this case. So I'm here to ask, Anyone out there who might be listening, if you live in the Brooklyn area or anywhere near there, and you saw something out of the ordinary going on February 6th or 7th, please call the New York Police Department. Even what you might think is the most insignificant detail might mean justice for Dre. Preston Power Dre. I love you, Rainbow Warriors. You matter. And remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. <laughs>